Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. I was just telling Mrs. Stapleton about the piano and the wind. I also mentioned that though my musical orientation is more Bach than Beach Boys, I do take an interest in the world of popular music. I'm something of an expert, but can be fallible. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Sean and I are returning to our roots in a way today because we're going to talk about consequences, which we haven't for a while. And we're really glad to welcome to the podcast Giles Booth, who is a consummate consequences expert. In fact, possibly the original one. He started, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he started the, um, the website, Mr. Blint's Attic, in the late 90s, which was extraordinarily early to start mm. a website about consequences. <laughs> so uh, we'll get to hear about that and, and, and lots of other stuff. Welcome, Giles. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Paul. It is, I'm really, I'm absolutely honoured and humbled to be here. I'm st- stepping in such august footsteps. Don't be so um, daft. No, no, no. <laughs> you, you are the originator of the, of the Holy Grail. And um, yeah, we, we bow to you. We are not worthy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> so yeah, d- welcome, Giles. So please tell us, but to start, if you will, how did you, uh, well, we know that part of the journey ended mm. at the formation of the website. How how did you get to there? It was a it was a kind of funny old route. I, I really liked 10cc as a child, so I was born in '67. So that kind of, if you want to sort of put that in perspective of of my uh, how old I was when 10cc got going, um, but I think it was mainly um, life as a minestrone, just hearing that on the radio, and mm. I absolutely loved it. It was just one of my favourite pieces of music, and it's I had the 10cc greatest hits album. The one with the like the cartoon is that is it was it called Greatest Hits? The That's one with right. like the graphic yeah. art yeah. on it. And I had that and would sort of play that to death. But sort of Minestrone was my kind of favourite uh song, um, probably of all of those compositions, but wasn't really aware. I didn't really know very much about 10cc as a band in the way that I did about the Beatles. I love the Beatles as well, but I knew I would read everything I could get on the Beatles and knew their story and knew a lot about them, but I was never quite had that connection. Uh, quite so much with 10cc um but when i was about i guess i was about 17 <laughs> appropriately uh-huh. enough my, i had a much older brother or still do still with us um who worked for sennheiser uh-huh. uh, or worked for a company that became sennheiser uk it was a company called hayden laboratories and they were like the sole importers of Hen- sennheiser microphones and headphones uh, in the UK, and he's a hi-fi nerd, and he had borrowed from a friend of his um, a cassette of Consequences, not not the original release cassette, it was just taped off vinyl, mm-hmm. um, and he lent it to me, and I never gave it back, um, and I played this cassette absolutely to death, and he lent it to me because he knew I liked 10cc, and he, he thought, well, you might be interested in this, uh, and also some of the story about the recording behind it, because he had given me for my birthday or Christmas, um, probably when I was about 10 or something, a pair of Sennheiser HD 414 oh, Were they the ones with the yellow foam? Well, yeah, they, these were blue, but it was the same one. It was like white plastic <laughs> with um, with yellow foam or, or blue yeah, foam. I loved mine. Mine were blue. They were they were amazing headphones, and around the same time was when um, it was a great vogue for Sennheiser Dummy Head Stereo. Ooh, so this yeah. is one of his records that he he sort of lent me, and again I never gave back. This is a, a Sennheiser demonstration disc for recording uh, with Dummy Head Stereo. And now I am even closer, even closer to your right ear. And anschließend, 
ja, ebenso nah an ihr rechtes Ohr heran. And I did, I remember doing my own experiments with this. I got to, we had like, it was literally just a Sanyo music center and it had stereo, it had two mics, um, crappy little things. And I remember fixing them onto the back of a chair and doing some experiments. I'm kind of walking around the microphone and doing this, that and the other. And just recording it on a cassette on this Sanyo music center. The, that's the music center, not the horse. Must have sounded um, great. <laughs> <laughs> but then I put them on and just took back with these Sennheiser HD 414s on and it blew my mind. It was just, I literally jumped out of my skin, even just with these two. It was just the idea of having two microphones pointing, not as a cross pair, but pointing out um, kind of at 180 degrees. And the, the depth of stereo image that that gave, even without the dummy head, um, I thought was extraordinary. So it's this kind of, he kind of sparked off my interest in sound and sound recording and how these things were made. Um, and obviously there was, That fed into why consequences was so interesting because starting to listen to it and he I think he must have told me that they use the Sennheiser dummy head uh, microphone. Can we can um, we just explain uh, again, Giles, for, for our listeners who've forgotten what Paul and I said a couple of years ago about this? Um, we hear it a few times, don't we, on the record? Notably, notably down poor Martin Lawrence down the bottom of the staircase. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because the fa well, obviously the famous bit is where they're doing the burial scene. So they, I think they had a plank of wood, didn't they, down the bottom of a staircase in, yes. in Strawberry Studios and um, shoveling earth on top. Was it Martin Lawrence who was underneath it? Was I, he? I think it, the... it. I think it would have been um, with the guy, the man with the mic. I think it was a, an assistant. It's just but, described uh, as an assistant in the book. Yes, but I, I, yeah. I, I don't okay. know, but somebody may. I think maybe Martin escaped that that chore um and records that amazing piece of audio where you hear what it is like to be in a coffin oh, that is yes. being buried and having earth shoveled on top of it for as much as it has pleased almighty god of his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our brothers here departed we therefore commit their bodies to the ground earth to earth ashes to ashes But I was going to ask you because there's a picture in the book of more, it just says like more Sennheiser experiments. Where else in consequences do you think they used this dummy head recording technique where you have a physical head? It's like a polystyrene head, wasn't it? That you put uh, the microphones are like a pair of headphones that sit on the head, and it's not only the separation and the way the microphones are pointing, but it's supposed to be the physical characteristics of the head, the shape of your face and nose and everything that is supposed to sort influence of sim simulate the, the human experience yeah. of hearing. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's almost like it's almost like a space again for our listeners, like a hole or something. So that when you put your real head into the yeah. space imagined by the recording, it's like being surrounded mm. exactly. by what has actually been recorded. It's, so it's, it's a wonderful it's, thing. And I, 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 in answer to question I'm, i'm sure there's a, a picture in the in the booklet giles of of them using the head in a in a different session yeah they do there's a picture of it in a in a in one of the normal studios it's um okay. it's definitely and it says sort of more sennheiser experiments so it's can you hold yeah. it up so we can see you've brought your book we haven't okay um so is that lol at a drum a, kit or is it oh no it's, it's one, one at the top one at the top so oh, yeah. i guess is that martin that's that Martin, Martin in the foreground, yes. Setting up the dummy head and lol 
Is that Lola or Kevin? Ke- I Kevin, can't see I think I can it, see. It's Kevin, yeah. Kevin in the background, but that's not at the bottom of the staircase. It's no. it's it's in a normal studio environment. So, do you know? Did they? Where else did they use it? In well, the album? I I I suspect they probably recorded a lot of the, the the actual real sounds that they used. Like for example, the the drip drops in the flood. They may have been recorded as stereo tracks rather than uh, oh, than a yeah. mono thing just for kind of added realism, the windows opening, the lift, you know, all those sort of things. Veronica, how many times have I told you not to disturb me at the office? I go with Monsieur Blint. Ex parte I'll have to drink about that. Wonderful lift noise. Is that yeah. a real? Is that the real lift that's, in the? That's in the real strawberry lift. We've actually seen it. <laughs> and doesn't it appear? Doesn't the same lift appear on a Barclay James Harvest? It does. Record? It does in that suicide track um, oh, that closes nice. side one or something. Um, we had a clip of that on a pod a few mm. months back, and that that's quite disturbing. It feels like it's recorded with a Sennheiser head, Giles, but right? I'm not sure yeah. it was. I, I imagine the fireworks were probably recorded with with the head on location uh, as well yes that would make sense and, they seem to have given the... it an, a nickname as well if you look closely at that photograph oh, yeah. it's got l sid written on it really? oh, I never spotted on that. the forehead of the dummy head <laughs> so maybe that was their nickname for their microphone brilliant oh we, we've 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 really dived down a fabulous rabbit hole here and it's funny um giles and i were, were having a bit of a chit chat on twitter earlier on uh because he he posted this picture of the Sennheiser kind of dummy recording a skiffle band on the, on that demonstration single. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. It's really funny. Of all the things that you think, this is a typical setup. I know. What, what Sennheiser thought you'd be using your microphone. They've got an airport, <laughs> um, a telephone box, um, a railway station, um, a choir, and a skiffle band. <laughs> this is in 1974. Oh, yeah, loads of skiffle bands still operating there. <laughs> But it sparked off some memories for me, Giles, that chat earlier on. And and I I think we probably mentioned it on one of our, our early pods, Paul. I remembered something I was very excited about when I was in my mid-teens. Um, and I was frankly way 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 too young to be interested in stuff like this but on on radio three in 1978 literally weeks after my dad had finally got his hands on a stereo tuner radio three broadcast this uh, experimental play called the revenge and the incredible thing about it was that it was a play about half an hour long with absolutely no dialogue whatsoever uh, wow. All it was was sound effects and the human sounds of breathing and chewing and grunting and all the rest of it. So it's it's this complete uh, kind of uh, aural or binaural uh, experience. But I found out today, having done a little, little bit of digging around about it, it was written and performed by Andrew Sachs. He of Manuel from Faulty Towers. 
Wow. Yeah. Um, and Giles That's has got some trivia about it as well. But I remember <laughs> having my dad's, uh, he had a pair of AKG headphones, these huge, heavy things. Mm. And I remember listening to it live on the radio and obviously banging it on a TDK tape as we went, obs. Mm. And uh, it was absolutely fantastic. And just like you, Giles, I was... A, a real geek, still am, but out there with the, the, the closest thing I could get to matching microphones, recording mm. anything, dogs barking outside, you know, my brother <laughs> doing wheelies on his bike going past, all that sort of thing. But this thing was really incredible. And um, until today, I've, I've seen nothing about it uh, at mm. all. So it, it was a joy to kind of be reacquainted. And it does exist on YouTube in pretty bad quality, unfortunately, but... Um, I might be able to steal a little clip for it for the pod. You've got some trivia, haven't you, Giles? About well, this? no, it's just I, I'd not heard of this at all until he mentioned it. So I just looked it up and saw that it had, it had been repeated on Radio Four Extra a few years ago. We were a bit late Damn. to watch it, but I looked at the cast list and um, Andrew Sachs's wife <laughs> is in it. So it's a little bit, a bit of a tenuous link. The consequences: yeah. um, a drama recorded <laughs> Sennheiser dummy head stereo by someone who cast their wife. It's, it's a niche kind of seventy-eight. So could yeah. Andrew have been influenced by consequences there. Oh, well, that's a good thought. He, Maybe he, he may have been, but I think there were a lot of a lot of people using this thing, weren't they? Um, sort of for, I think for radio plays and and sound effect recording and so on. So who knows? But he, he might mm. have. He might have. Yeah, I think it's one of the aspects I, I suspect of consequences that was more it had more impact than the record itself in a way it was one of the people would talk about the way it recorded it i think my brother was aware of the fact that it had sennheiser dummy head stereo recordings in it possibly because he worked for sennheiser so maybe they were they maybe they talked about it in their in their marketing or when they were trying to sell them yeah. but it's interesting because it's the same time as um quadraphonic was kind of bubbling around and he had i've still got it somewhere it's an amazing fisher american tuner amp with a quadraphonic tuner and it's got a joystick instead of a balance control on it. Oh yeah. And but when you hear like a good dummy head stereo like that, you think, well, why would you need four channels when two channels? There's no special effects processing. This is not Dolby surround sound. This is just stereo. Listening to it on headphones. Why would you need? <laughs> why would you need that? But the thing about just to jump in about consequences. The thing about. One of the things about it, I know there's a lot of there was a, a lot of technical advancements and all this paraphernalia that could be used in with recording. I mean, I heard consequences on a on a just a cassette player, I think, first. And so nevertheless, the the artistry of what Kevin Law achieved mm -hmm. in terms of creating a space, a physical space for us. That, that came through, even on this kind of fairly crummy equipment I was listening to it. So, so yes, mm. they were using state-of-the-art technology, but they did it in a way that it actually worked dynamically, creatively. It brought everything to life. And I, that's, I, I don't know what the reason why, why what they did was most so much more successful than anybody else, I think, but they did somehow. Yeah, it's a good point. This. 
it's a good point. I, don't, I guess well, part of it as well. They're they're long. I know they're not sort of didn't have quite the same engineering backgrounds probably as someone like Eric, but having made music for such a long time and having sort of grown up making making music in the nineteen sixties, um, you can't help but thinking they had they had an, an one ear. Although it's like this grand folly of over the top audio sound design before sound design was probably even a term. Um, that they had one ear on like a little monitor mix what's this going to sound like on the radio it's not i think there is some of that in there i i I listened to consequences for years just on this cassette it was just all i had a cassette recorded off vinyl um until i don't know when well we'll, we could talk about one of the things i thought we could talk about was the we could do a bit of reissue nerdery Sure. Well, let's yeah, let's so. get let's get back onto your. Let, Giles, let's oh, get so, back yeah, your, yes, that's okay. Back onto your timeline. So that back onto my timeline. Into... We've gone on. So yeah, yes. so I was I had consequences on cassette. Uh, listened to it a lot. It, it was backed um, on the to fill up the rest of the cassette. There was an off-air recording of another Radio Three program um, called Sounds Interesting, ah, yes. presented by Derek Jewell, um, who was I think is a music critic. Uh, it was the only kind of rock program on Radio Three, uh, and he played. I think he played a lot of sort of rock and jazz and avant-garde uh, stuff on there. And it was an off-air recording of when L came out. So there were three. He was sort of just showcasing L, and there were three tracks that he played. And for years, this was all I knew of L. I only knew Art School Canteen, Sandwiches of You, and This Sporting Life. And I absolutely love those. And that's what got me into Godly and Cream then. And then I managed mm-hmm. to unpick the story of how the bands that I'd loved as a child, how 10CC, that actually these guys were in 10CC and then they left. And that is why 10CC changed. And that is why maybe the later 10CC stuff around Dreadlock Holiday sounded a bit different. And why personally I stopped liking 10CC. I didn't really like any. I mean, I like dreadlock holiday but i didn't really like much after that yeah so i didn't really i i parted company with 10cc after the split and thought well it's actually it was godly and cream it's these guys that i really liked um (laughs) and that's when i got into exploring godly and cream and their stuff that was then um coming out around that time like ismism freeze frame all those stuff and then i think after that things like L started getting reissued although consequences kind of didn't yeah but i I found myself in uh, sort of late 90s, so 1997, um, I was on attachment, which is like a BBC secondment thing, um, to American National Public Radio, NPR, um, had a bureau in a really weird corner of Bush House on the Strand, which is where the World Service is, uh, tucked away. It's, it's an amazing building. Um, it's um, King's College are in there now. Uh, BBC, all the BBC studios have all been ripped out. Um, but in the corner was where uh, American National Public Radio had a tiny little office and a little studio. And they had a London correspondent and I was his producer for six months on attachment. Okay. And we had internet. And they didn't have internet anywhere else in the BBC, really. Most people didn't have access to it. Email wow. was only just starting to become a thing. But there were no web browsers. There was nothing on your desktop. You didn't have a, you know, computers were not a, a sort of normal, they were like newsroom computer systems, but you didn't have access to the internet. But we did. We had a lease line from Washington that had really, for the time, really fast internet on it. And I remember loading up um, a, a thing called Spry Mosaic, which is like an early web browser, and then wow. Netscape. And I taught myself HTML because I had a lot of downtime because we were news driven when there was nothing happening in the news or nothing happening in the news that Washington were interested in. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't matter how important we thought a story was in the UK, if Washington didn't want to know about it, 
we didn't have to do anything on it. Um, so I had a lot of downtime. So, uh, this, so is a, my... this is the, the web language that, that she used yeah, to, so the... to design websites. Exactly. So yes, it's so the I... code. The code. I'm nodding uh, here, but so I, I, I like yeah, exactly. I'm just I'm, t- I'm t- helping people out here. Static alphabet, rigid stabbing monotone. There's positive or negative, but no in between. Well, Giles, I'm right. I think you say, in fact, you do say on your website that you coded the thing in Notepad, which yes. is fairly hard, hardcore. Well, which, which yeah. is basically just typing, <laughs> typing an entire in website in text, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So, it well, it, it had an iteration before that. So, there was a thing called GeoCities, which was like a sort of proto MySpace, which I I've probably yeah, have to explain to your younger listeners what MySpace was. But um, it was a community, it was an online community where you could set up a web page and you didn't need to know any coding for it. And it had districts and uh, all named after places. And I set my page up in the Paris district because it was bohemian and full of artists and musicians so uh, and you had a number like a four-digit number so paris 9992 was the home of mr blint's attic because i wanted to make a page on the internet because it was the it was the coming thing and i thought what am i going to make a page about i thought well you know everything that i'm interested in has pretty much been done but there's no one has done anything about i couldn't find anything on the early search engines like alta vista and um ask jeeves or Mm. yahoo or whatever google hadn't been invented then um i couldn't find anything about consequences so i thought well okay this this might be an interesting topic for a website because there's nothing on the internet that i can find well, that's, about pre- that's precisely um our raison d'etre for starting <laughs> this bloody thing it, it yes. was because it wasn't there yeah i'm a reasonably skilled electrician i was once asked to turn professional but i don't think i'd have enjoyed the publicity i've always been rather a private person but giles i think you're you're being overly modest now i in that how ahead of the curve you were now i remember your website being featured in mojo well that's how i heard about it which yeah and i'm i'm not sure that it there were a few websites but i'm not sure that it wasn't the first website dedicated to one particular album well you know in the world i'd not thought of that but i've got i've got the clipping in front of me so so this month this month's most peculiar email was from BBC producer Giles Booth. He says, I could stand the world, the cruel world's indifference no longer. I have created an unofficial homepage for the long-neglected 1977 masterpiece Consequences by Lowell Cream, Kevin Godley and Peter Cook. And then they say after it, it's true, an entire website for a 20-year-old album. This is when it was at GeoCities. Not yeah. even Sergeant Pepper has that. Yes, wow. that's right. So just to put this in context, this is 1997, right? Yeah, around that point, because I remember I I was there when we did it was the 97 election was the big news story when i was on it was only a six okay. month secondment so i'm pretty sure it's 97 it's extraordinarily early to have a website mm. and uh and i mean it, it's it's great website because a lot of early websites they're much better now because there's better tools but <laughs> a, a, a lot of them were like a sort of explosion in a kind of um crayons factory and uh, yeah. you, n- nothing was readable it was all garish there's a lot of Yours, rainbow a lot of the blink tag yeah lots yeah, of flashing your, text <laughs> your your site from the off a bit 
actually what i guess the site was it influenced by the design style of consequences itself in yeah, terms so of its fonts exactly it's, it was all black um, yes, right. times new roman um and yellow and white text <laughs> very elegant and it remains so to this day Thank you. and it's it's a it's a, a great repository of information it's an incredible but thing i then did i learned my own html so i coded up the site and that's when the design changed so when i had some control over it i learned a little bit about web design which is something that i did in my sort of bbc career i designed sort of internal websites in fact if you watch the news on bbc you might sometimes see behind the presenter there's like a big screen in the background that has got text on it yeah um and it's the it's called the arrivals board and it's where when correspondents file dispatches they appear automatically in a system and it flashes up on the screen like an airport arrivals board and i designed the look of that screen mm. and you'll notice wow. it's the same similar it's a black background with yellow text on it so that's, I always get a little buzz when I watch the news. I think they've well, still got that. They haven't an- changed my another style tenu- Another tenuous <laughs> legacy tenuous for this album. How can I know what I do know? What's becoming really clear? You can't have black backgrounds behind the screens anymore. Um, yeah. So I redesigned Mr. Splint's Attic and hosted it on um, some other platform you know, where I could write my own code. Um, and I started getting emails, but not very many. I did get an email from someone called Paul McNulty. Yes. <laughs> um, with, with an article that he'd submitted to, Con- uh, to Mojo magazine. And that was yeah. one of my first pieces of externally generated original content because I had got my, my own copy after my cassette in like the late 80s. I, in my gap year, traveled around the States a lot. I did like a Greyhound tour around America. And I went to Boulder, Colorado, one place I went. And in a secondhand shop, I found this is the only vinyl copy I've got of Consequences is the American wow. shoe. Mm. Yes. It was $30. And I just, I've been looking for this for years and not found it sort of pre-internet. You couldn't do anything. And now you can buy anything online if yeah. you've got the money. Mm. But that was a bit harder back in those days. So I bought it, lugged it all around the States with me and, and brought it home <laughs> with me. But everything I put on the website really was based on the book inside the, the vinyl album because I didn't have any other... I have uh, no uh, other. The mythical Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> yeah, I love the thought of that being presumably kind of in your rucksack, forming the kind of hard yeah. back of your rucksack. All it the literally way around was. I had a big backpack Brilliant. and that was in the, in the spine it. of it when I was kind of on the road. <laughs> were you aware on, in those early days of the website how many hits you were getting, how many people were, were viewing the website? I, did you, I did think you know? I can't. Every website had a hit counter, didn't they? In those days, yes, that's right. Uh, I just that, or, or a man shoveling stuff, saying under construction. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I did. I'm sure I did. Very low numbers, and the emails have never. It's been steady. I get about four a year, probably. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I still do occasionally get get emails, but less. I think because there's more. There's more of a forum and a community and people meet on other places now, but um, it was never very many, um, but it was, it was, uh, it was fascinating. So, and the other thing, well, we'll perhaps we'll talk about reissue separately, oh, yeah, but sure. I had, so the first reissue that I kept became aware of is this German, I think it's a German yes. polygram. Is that the one that, that n- numbered on the front? Numbered on the, on the book. Yes. So it has a reproduction booklet, hand numbered, minus yes, 1,333. That's the version I've got. It sounds great, that one. I had thought that had come out later than it did because I looked it up on Discogs, which has got, I think there are 14 different versions of Consequences listed on Discogs currently. Um, But they say it's 91. 
which is a lot earlier than I thought. Yeah, that um, that's when I bought mine. I was in Tokyo at the time, and I got very excited when I saw this thing. But I can't remember how I found out about this because this is that's pre-internet. How did I know that? Well, it's not pre-internet, but it's pre-anyone yeah. really having the internet or World Wide Web. Um, how did I know this had come out, and how did I find it? I have, I have no memory of how I acquired this. Weren't there things like magazines available? Oh, maybe. Record collector, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I didn't read Record Collector. I read the NME, but I don't think they would have. They would have mentioned it. <laughs> but but that was a that was a real find. That was a joy to get that. Um, yeah. To hear it absolutely pristine for the first time in in, in so long. Wonderful. What was it? You've talked about the. You, you marvelling at the sort of sound techniques that they used to record in Consequences, but what else inspired you, Giles, to do something that work-intensive and that crazy to actually start a website? <laughs> I think it was a mixture. It was lots of things came together. So I liked Peter Cook anyway. Um, I liked his humour. I didn't know anywhere near as much about his sort of career and his humour as I do now. So if my dog is trying to get into <laughs> It's all right. It's all right. Dod- crashed by the dog. Doddy, Doddy's um, going to join in, in in a minute too. Yeah, my it? dog, my dog's here too, so they'll start howling together in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Which, of course, will be a link back to consequences. <laughs> Indeed. Well, as long as long as they're still here, there's nothing to worry about. Let's yeah, no way. dogs exactly. at the moment. It's odd, you know, no dogs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was it was a mixture of things. So I I'd like studied English at university. Said so the dramatic aspect of it was really important to me it's one of the things i'd like to talk about later in some of reappraising consequences now is i think the play is underrated um some people are very dismissive of it um i've just been reading um just before we came on i must have read this a long time ago but this book uh the book about peter kirk and the authors of this book love the play and they rate it very, very highly. Well, one of them is is a friend of the show, Paul Hamilton, who was on yeah. uh, a, a few months ago. It's a great read. I've only recently finished it I'm, myself, actually. I well, love I'm gonna, it I've had, I had it when it came. I've got two editions of it, actually, because people kept giving it to me because um, they knew I liked Peter Kirk. Uh, I'm going to have to reread that because they're, they're absolutely... I don't know who of the four authors, I don't know who wrote... Was it... Was it um, Paul Hamilton, who wrote the chapter about consequences. Yes, yes. Yes, it would have been. He's yeah, yeah. absolutely on the nose. Whereas Harry Thompson, um, the late Harry Thompson, uh, his, his fantastic biography of Peter Cook, he's very dismissive about consequences. Um, he's he's very sharp on Peter Cook and, and, and his failings when he failed. Uh, but he regards consequences as one of the failures. But perhaps we'll talk about that um, in a moment if we have time. But I think so it's a mixture of things. It was a mixture of musicians from a band I loved. Um, it was the uh, the sort of recording nerdery bit of it, that bit of uh, the technology and the way that they had had recorded it. Um, it was the play, the drama, uh, the unlikely kind of marriage of Godley and Cream and Peter Cook. It's it's kind of really odd, but I think works. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a mixture of those things, really. It's words and music. If you want to join me, you'd better jump. Jump. I don't understand. What is it he can do? Well, what was the point where, where you, you made the Eureka um, discovery? Um, we've talked about it a couple of times mm-hmm. on our pod. 
the joy that came to me when I clicked that the characters represented one of the elements. Did you feel the same joy well, of geeky discovery as I did? Or, or do you of. disagree with the theory? Well, rem- just remind me again, who is, because I was thinking about this before starting this conversation, <laughs> who, who is supposed to be which element? So uh, the four yeah. like medieval elements are fire, what they fire, earth, Air and water. Air, wind and yes. water. Yeah. Pe- Pepperman is fire. Pepperman's uh, fire. St- Stapleton is earth. Lulu right. is air. And the Hague is water. Right. Not as compelling as the theory that they represent four cast members of Beyond the Fringe. Which I think not- is, Paul, is Paul Hamilton's theory. And that is oh, so compelling too. That is where I didn't realise until just before we, we started this conversation, I reread the section in here and he, he's got that in there. I think that is more on the nose. <laughs> I think they're both on the nose myself. <laughs> and, and it's a bit of work of genius uh, for Peter Cook to bring those two, uh, no no pun intended, to bring those two elements together. <laughs> those four elements together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it's, it's yeah. fabulous. I, so, uh, yeah, I love all the, the kind of bonkers, almost conspiracy theories. I love all the stuff about 17, which I catalogue on Mr. Blint's Attic. I go into lots of stuff. Oh, yes. down, things that, that I never spotted, like... Um, Pepperman's uh, account number or phone number, I never quite worked out, his PEC 2528 when he's ringing Labbrooks adds up to 17. Um, I think all of that comes from Peter Cook. Um, I'm pretty convinced because he was born on the 17th of November, as was my eldest son. He lived around, I don't know if it's at that time, one of his houses was number 17 in Hampstead in North London. I'm convinced. Although there is a connection with Kev, wasn't there one of Kev's early bands? In yeah, the 60s? Group Seventeen. That was Group Seventeen. He, he, he was playing bass for them or something. Maybe yeah. I don't know whether that had come out in a conversation, and they just thought, well, we've got to focus on the Seventeen because Peter Cook was already interested in the number Seventeen. I am thirty-four, Monsieur Blind. Naturally. Theory about the four elements sort of makes perfect sense, but I was kind of kind of emailed out of the blue in the late 90s when I was starting Mr Blint's Attic by somebody who said, have you ever noticed that they they represent, or four of the characters represent characters from beyond the fringe? And whilst that might not have been a deliberate like construct on the drama, I think it absolutely does inform it. So, that, so the idea is that um, Pepperman is Jonathan Miller. It was a Jewish family that I was born into, and I say that as if to say that I'm not Jewish. <laughs> um, and in a sense, I am trying to say that because although my family uh, were Jewish and I am genetically Jewish, I have absolutely no subscription to the creed. Both Jewish. Both Jewish. Yeah. Um, Haig is Peter Cook because he's getting increasingly drunk uh, throughout the production, as indeed we understand he got increasingly drunk throughout the recording sessions of Consequences. I've uh, lived a long time. I've been distorted, I've been misrepresented, and I've been quoted accurately, which is uh, perhaps the most appalling. Um, Alan Bennett is represented by Walter Stapleton because he's got a northern accent, although it's not quite yeah, Yorkshire, Lancashire. Yes, with, with, all those kind of, <laughs> with all those very thoughtful aphorisms, aren't they? Yes. I like white coats, but then I'm a butcher's son. White coats have no terrors for me. Oh, I think it's very close to Bennett, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So he's kind of mocking him. Um, And that Blint is Dudley Moore (laughs) because he's kind of a Londoner. I I think he doesn't really do a Dudley Moore voice. He does the uh, Wisty voice for Blint, which is kind of interesting. If the giraffe could leap pound for pound as high as the grasshopper, 
they'd avoid a lot of trouble. As I was walking down the street one day, I saw a house on fire. There was a man shouting and screaming at an upper story window to the crowd that was gathered there below, for he was so afraid. Uh, at a time when he was, at, it's kind of interesting that he did that because he could have made that character a real target. Because in some of his other work at that time, he was this was towards the end of his working relationship with Dudley Moore, mm. and Peter Cook behaved publicly and privately, I think, quite viciously towards Dudley Moore. Yes, uh, and took took any opportunity to mock him and belittle him. Um, which he doesn't do to that character, really. I mean, you could argue that Blint is the hero. He is the hero. <laughs> this, the strange, very much so, yeah. The, the strange hero of consequences. So it's kind of, that's a kind of an odd one. Maybe that's a little bit forced. But it's certainly hard, as you say, with Alan Bennett, it's hard not to see these sort of cryptic one yeah. line. <laughs> you know, if you're not a chicken, don't eat corn. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you can imagine that coming out of an Alan Bennett character's yeah, mouth. definitely. <laughs> oh, ah, sorry. Cheers. You know that the um, do you know this Giles originally, uh, obviously Peter Cook is rightly credited with the with the elements aspect or, or at least co-authoring that if you like. But Dudley and Cream did have a narrative structure. We've learned, haven't they? It was it was going to be gambling for gamblers, um, oh, which really? you, and that evolved. I can't remember where I read that. Uh, it may actually have been in an interview that was released at the time, and I think Lowell said it. But you can see how one begat the other, can't you? Mm. And get, I think that gambling idea of the four separate gambling parties could have worked. You could almost imagine they were gambling with the elements, with the future of the earth, or some. There could still yeah, have been playing, that leap from playing dice with the world, kind of thing. Right? Maybe. Kind of, yes. Yeah. So I. I I, so, I don't know where did that, where did that come out because the the whole oh, genesis of the thing seems sh- to this day shrouded in mystery to me. Oh, and that just was... makes it it makes it great the fact <laughs> that it is shrouded in mystery, doesn't it? Uh, I I should have done research, but I've I've seen it written down, and I think Lowell said it. Right. That's that that is kind of although gambling does crop up, doesn't it? In a, that's right. Up by there's Peter a, Cook, so there's, there's elements a, of of it in there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there's the whole thing about you know. Uh, Gambling on the outcome of World War Two and all that. I know it? it's it's, it's <laughs> World, incredible. World War Two did me no good at all. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, musically, Jars, I know that you're a big ad- admirer of the songs on Consequences. Mm. Are you like me and and really get off on the wild instrumental stuff like Stampede, or, or do you do you go for the vocal songs more? It's pro- probably more the vocal songs, I have to say. And I've sort of been thinking about this about what would have. What would it have taken to make it a success? And you could argue, well, you could lose disc one and make it a double album. Would have been a lot cheaper <laughs> to produce. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I listened to it again. Uh, well, I listened to it a couple of times just in the last two days, and you do kind of you do need it. You do need those the opening instrumental. It's like a it's like a really extended overture, isn't it? Yes. It's, but it but an overture gone crazy. And it does set the scene um, in an odd way, given that my understanding from the chronology of it was that they'd had pretty much was side one or at least side one of disc one um, in the can before yes. Peter Cook even got involved, I think. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. But I believe so. I believe so. Without, without side 
one and two, though, it becomes too Peter Cook heavy. It really yeah. does become uh, Kevin Lowell gets too thinly stretched in that case. Yeah. Uh, and, and the instrumental portions prevent Cook from running away with the record. That's the way I feel about yeah. it. And it's yeah, I think, I think that's right, Paul. <laughs> You know, if I was in a hurry, what am I going to listen to? Right. I probably would normally have just picked the vocal songs. And I think they are, but it's it's kind of weird. There's like, there's like, I think there's like four completely different works of art at war, like four conflicting forces, because you've got you've got Godly and Cream's 10cc record that they yep. wanted to make, and which they did make, which is kind of disc one. And they've got their Gizmo demonstration record. You've mm -hmm. got... Um, some Godly and Cream songs that could have gone on a Godly and Cream album or formed part of a 10cc album. Agreed. Um, you've got a radio play written by and starring Peter Kirk, and you've got a piece of musical theatre. And where I think the most successful pieces of music on it um, are the ones where it does blend and they do... Um, the music relies on the text and the text relies on the music. And there are some bits where little bits of like music sort of pops up mm. like mine yours for Ooh, example yes. that whole bit is yeah. is seamless and beautiful i love that but that's just like a musical fragment um I, I guess that's maybe what kev was talking about when he talks about oh we had these little fragments in there that were kind of wasted you know we could have turned those into songs if you don't know what half a hairpin is how can our side be expected to believe that you're cognizant of what a whole hairpin comprises all we know, you may have a whole horde of half hairpins masquerading as whole hairpins concealed about the house. Um, but I think all the more tantalising that just listening to that, I remember when I first heard Consequences thinking, that is so good, but they've just like tossed that in as a little aside. That's just a bit of it. That's there for colour, you know. It's, and yeah. it's so, I think, it's a, so it's beautiful. It's a sumptuous, gorgeous thing. We, we do know that there's there once existed a tape with a, a musical version of that on jars we've got the tape box or we've what, rather, of mine yours we've got a photo yeah. we've got a photograph no. we'll, we'll send it to you <laughs> um it's in fact it's, it's on our shared folders for our, for our subscribers but it's wonderful it seems to purport to be side one and side two of consequences okay as a single lp um and you've got tracks like predictably five o'clock in the morning mm. cool 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 um Lost Weekend is on there. And right in the middle of this thing, Mine Yours. Um, yes. Before, so that, we think before Dialogue was dubbed. That's what yeah. we... It's a tape box. It's a tape box, yes. yeah. It's a quarter, is there a tape inside it? Well, um, well. We, we have we have our contacts and they're, they're currently chasing their contacts to see if it, it's on a shelf somewhere. That'd be so exciting. Oh. And then, well, Giles, we should we should say, sorry to jump in, Sean, our contact in, in that regard is Ken Maliphant, ah, who, right. who, who is a key contact in several for several reasons. He was the, the MD of Phonogram at the time and, as, as listeners will know, uh, was very supportive of the Consequences project. And he was, uh, you put us in touch with him, or, right. or, or at least you you sort of thought, you said to us, or said to me, Giles. I, I tracked you... him down through yes. some internet site. Was, we're going off the ta on a tangent mm. a bit, but I, I do want to thank you because he really was, well, he was a first, our first interviewee, wasn't yeah. he, Sean? Yeah. And right. that gave a bit of momentum and weight to what we were attempting to do because he, he oh, came fantastic. on board and through him, We've got lots of other interviews, so it was, I, it was great. Absolutely. I wonder if it's 
if I actually spoke to Ken in okay. 19, was he still in phonogram in 1997 or had he retired or left? By no, then? I think he he'd left. retired, but no. he left, he'd left phonogram. I can't remember what he was doing then. I had a phone call one day uh, when Mr. Blint sat it, probably after it had been in, Mo- in Mojo. Somebody rang me up and it, I, I, this is one of the things, one of the, my biggest regrets in my life that I never chased right. this up. Somebody rang me from phonogram. But they weren't ringing from phonogram. They were ringing from Tony Wilson's office in Manchester. Right. And I think they were probably doing some deal around probably rescuing Factory Records or buying it out. You know, they did a partnership with London Records, which I think was part of phonogram um, around the tail end. I was a complete factory obsessive and nerd. And Tony Wilson's one of my heroes. Yesterday, Matthew, I was a factory completist. Um, And I know he was a big fan of Strawberry Studios and 10CC and the fact that what they'd done for Manchester, that they had put their money uh, into a world-class recording studio, not not in um, London, but in Stockport. and he he was in his office for some reason and he rang me up and said they were going to reissue consequences and he wanted to get me involved oh and this was definitely in 1997 so the german cd had already come out but i don't think there were any other reissues i don't think it had been reissued on vinyl or, no. or been re-reissued in uh, on cd so it's like unavailable at that point oh my goodness but i i would have scribbled this on a bit of paper <laughs> and written a phone number down on a pad back at long lost and i can't remember his name i don't know who it was but it was somebody he was he was clearly he was like quite an important person in phonogram wow was he an affable was he an affable scott by any chance i can't remember he was he was certainly affable who who would the affable scott have that, that would be ken, ken. yeah ah, i i don't know it's odd was i it- don't know I can assume it was somebody who was still working for Phonogram because I can't, right. I can't think why else he would have been talking to Tony yeah. Wilson and Factory Records at that point. And he, he, was, he, he must have been, Paul, the, the only person left at Phonogram who liked the thing. Oh, well, maybe. He clearly knew about it and wanted to, wow. he was behind it and, and he clearly knew and liked Consequences. Oh, so I wonder amazing. if it was him. But I never chased it up. He never called me back and I never called them back. And oh. As far as I know, that Phonogram reissue in the late 90s did never happen. I remember maybe through you Giles hearing about that around that time that something was going to happen but nothing ever did. Mm. Ah, so. Here's here's a thought maybe uh maybe Ken did get the tapes back together and they passed the masters over to the Japanese company who released the I believe ah. the second reissue which if I'm not mistaken is is a Japanese one. Yeah, that that make any sense? They could have the phonogram in the UK could have produced the the actual masters, and then sent them over, sold them to Japan. Well, it came. I thought the next going into reissue territory here. So we had the German reissue ninety one, two discs. Yeah, which I think is fairly well fairly well reissued. I think there are some typos in the booklet, and they did a very clumsy thing where they tried to overcompensate for the fade out on the count into Blint's tune where they yes. sort of ramped the volume up and did, done it a bit clumsily. But just to have it on CD was amazing. The next one that I was aware of was an American reissue. This is the One Way. Right, yes. Reissue, which is, again, two CDs. I think this was remastered, but you may be able to... I think this is a different... It is. It's a different um, mastering job. It's it's different mastering EQ'd job. and compressed in a different way. Yeah. 
It was 10 o'clock on a wet and windy April morning. It was 10 o'clock on a wet and windy April morning. And I think that came out in about 2000, but I might be wrong. And I thought the Japanese one was a bit later. The Japanese one is lovely. Have you got the Japanese one? No. No, I haven't got that one. It's in a cardboard box and it has gold stamped lettering on it, like mm. the original. The packaging itself, so I've just transcribed this recently. It has amazing sleeve notes, which have got like an entire long history of 10cc and everyone who was in it and what they had for breakfast. So it's got amazing, like really like scholarly sleeve notes. <laughs> and they produce it is really weird. They've got these, even though it's on two discs, so it's the same track split as the one-way issue. And I think it might be, I think it's the same mastering job as that. Mm-hmm. Um, three coloured sleeves to match the original vinyl sleeves mm. but an, em- an empty sleeve in other words they're empty because it's on two discs <laughs> 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 and what what year is that from giles roughly you know? i think that's 2000 uh sorry oh. the japanese one no so yeah. 2000, uh, 2006 according to discogs okay um but it's it's a lovely thing and uh sort of a scholarly thing done with attention to detail and sort of what as you might expect from a sort of japanese reissue it's part of the uh what they call it's part of the british rock legend series um of reissues done through sort of it's mercury records phonogram uh in japan uh modern pop part one which has got godly and cream it's got l is in there um all the main all the early 10cc albums uh, up to bloody tourists and De- deceptive bends sparks um the buggles in there oh yes <laughs> Perhaps you mentioned some favorites of mine <laughs> so uh it's it's a lovely thing um and then so that came out in around 2006, I think. I think there was another Japanese, according to Discogs, it was a 2010 yep. Japanese reissue, again on two discs, I think, until, um, well, kind of like last year or year before. Yeah, 2019. When and the- we got the Caroline International. <laughs> so go on, what, what were your thoughts on that? Your honest thoughts? Um, it's kind of like, I think like it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. It's so nearly there. Yeah. I have like this imaginary dream reissue of consequences, which having all these different issues of it, editions of it now, I think I know what, what I would do if I was going to reissue it. So it's in a cardboard box, which is nice. Yeah. I like that. Um, the lettering's a bit oddly orange rather than yellow. I really like the gold block on the Japanese one. Yeah. And it's a bit too glossy. I like the fact the Japanese one is matte cardboard like the original um the booklet is is kind of interesting they reproduce a lot of the original booklet really nicely it's got an original interview with lol and Kev yeah about consequences which has got some factoids in there that i didn't know mm-hmm. um but oh my goodness then we come to the track the, listing the writing, oh yeah, the the writing and the credits, credits. <laughs> what i mean i shouldn't grumble i get a credit in this book they mentioned me and my website yeah yeah what, yeah see that what what, <laughs> what, what happened there what, peter cook wrote all the instrumentals didn't he <laughs> yeah, it's a fucking honestly, it's a, a shambles. It's just quality control, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think they randomly apportioned credits. <laughs> one would imagine. Uh, you know that on the on the on the PRS. I was going to say, what does the PRS database have to say about it, that? I'm sure it hasn't have, got that nonsense. No, it, it hasn't got anything to say about Peter Cook at all, and and all the songs, which are all that it is 
all that is listed on the website are credited to Kevin and Lol. That's interesting. So, so would a normally on a like a spoken word album, would that appear in a PRS database? And would the authorship of the or say a music that's something more comparable, like a musical that has got dialogue in between the tracks. book of the musical. The book. That's, a, yeah. that's a very good question. I, that's kind of what it is. Peter Cook wrote the book, didn't yes. he? For the musical I, of consequences. I think musical books are outside the scope of what the PRS look after. Right. Okay. I think. But I don't know for sure. Um, that's interesting because yeah, it's, it's not music I suppose yes it's, 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 a, it's a good question you're thinking too hard about this question it's clearly someone who just copied and pasted badly and nobody checked yeah. so, well, that's, that's not my only problem <laughs> so my other problem is I don't know what the other two discs are doing in there to me they didn't add anything no, I don't know what right. your thoughts are One in particular. I like the fact having three discs for the main album I think is a brilliant idea and I like that rather than shoehorning it onto two discs. So full marks for that. So my dream reissue would have discs one, two, and three on separate CDs in coloured pouches. Yeah. Um, I would have it in a 12-inch size cardboard box with a full-size <laughs> replica of the booklet with maybe added things in it. But because even, even in full size, I struggle to see some of the things that are in that. Yeah. in that book I'm, oh I'd, I'd love that to happen Giles should, should we make it our personal mission <laughs> yes, and I'll tell you what I'm, I'm going to do disc four aren't I, I <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to get the outtakes well, I was going to say if there is a disc four yeah. um, to me music from consequences and the I mean the other disc the musical episode was oh, it musical it, oh, it's it's kind of an odd thing isn't uh, it it's unlistenable too isn't it yeah why it just gives you less it doesn't give you any more yeah it's really badly edited as well so yeah. it's it's just literally someone's just Sorry got their that, scissors yeah. out and chopped up these non sequiturs. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a disgrace. Uh, it's an absolute waste. Does no credit to to the to the whole work of art as a whole um, at all. Uh, so perhaps we could talk about what would you if we were going to make a disc for to go in our imaginary uh, best ever consequences reissue. What would you put on disc four? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what we we do is a, a, a what used to be called what, what was it, an interactive CD with DVD, oh, yeah. with video files on it. Yeah, you'd have both at uh, both cinema adverts, um, oh. the long one and the short one. That that would be really cool. Consequences depicting a time when not one but all the elements turn their immense power against man. Can music save the world from extinction? Lowell Cream, Kevin Godley, and their talented guests undertake this seemingly impossible task. Do you dare listen? Will you accept the consequences? But something seems to be different And you can't quite put your finger on it at all Consequences. Will music ever be the same again? Um, I think they're, they're lovely, but the quality's not brilliant. But it's good enough for a disc. Uh, mm. There are some interviews. There's some promo work they did demonstrating the gizmo. There's a lovely yep. clip of Lowell playing, I think... Stampede, Paul. I think he's in an With interview. Richard Stogo on That's uh, the tomorrow one. as well. Yeah. Oh wow! Yes. Yeah, yes. and yeah. we'd we'd get those those musical clips without Peter Cook on on that that mythical mm. master tape we've mentioned. The mixes yeah. of the other tunes, you know, the familiar ones like Cool, 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 may well be 
um, rough mixes. We don't know because we've not right. heard it. Uh, and the fact you've got mine yours, and you've got mm. a track that's called just Ladbrokes, uh, could just oh, be, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's only about twenty three seconds long or something. Ladbrokes, good morning. Yeah, so it would just, it would just be that that you know the, the the harmonies there. So you you could bang together some really lovely, interesting oh, curios. That would be so cool. Or, or, course, and it, I, I know what the cover would look like too. It would be the tape. It would be the the, right. the, the tape box. See that it's it's made oh, for us. Yeah. Sorry, disc four. Yeah, yeah. Disc yeah. four. That you see that would be a CD extra. That's worth sexy, having. isn't it? That well, it, would be it, just amazing. It would be great, but I, I, what would be even greater, and I don't think we'll ever get this, is any real outtakes, i.e. works in progress. The That wonderful organic flow and, and to and fro of, of Peter mm. Cook and Kevin Lowell, you know, inching forward, one influencing the other in terms of what came next. Um, I'd love for some of that to turn up, but I'm pretty sure what, it doesn't do, What exist. do you think happens? It just got junked or just never... Tape-wise, yes. I mean, now in the booklet, there's a there's some kind of very small reproductions of pictures of the script, isn't there? Yes. Um, now, again, it would be wonderful to see any of that stuff. Now, we, we've we've talked about this with Paul Hamilton, and um, you know, when Peter Cook died, his last where he last lived, still in Hampstead, wasn't it? His house had tons and tons and tons of stuff in, mm. uh, perhaps including a lot of stuff relating to consequences. Um, and I think his widow, his third wife, lived in that house for a long time after, but she died recently. Oh, and, I didn't Hamilton, that. Yeah, Hamilton has actually tried to, to get, you know, access to some Peter Cook stuff, not necessarily consequences stuff, but other stuff. But he was always, he, he could never get anywhere. Um, so, you know, one wonders what happened to that. Yeah, is, I wonder what there, happened to his kind of archive. Yeah, because even even the written word would throw a light on the creative process. Oh, it absolutely would. Because you imagine you can't because of the the most successful bits, as I've said before. I think where the music and the um, the play blend together, and there must have been some fluidity in the creative process and changes um, from. Oh, yeah. Because I've been re- from some of the stuff I've just been rereading um, that Pete, even when Peter Cook had de- like delivered a script. There was even then still talk about getting like Peter Euston off and other people involved mm-hmm. in performing yes. the script that Peter Cook would just be one player in the play and he'd have other actors against um, acting against him. So things must have changed around that. And I think, I mean, I, I'm quite glad that didn't happen. I actually think it's one of the brilliant things about it is that yes. Peter Cook 100%. plays all those parts. And I've long thought that. And then I was just rereading um, Paul Hamilton's book and he is so up on the play as a work mm. of art he compares it to pinter he compares it to beckett um and the fact that you've got these layered voices um you know, reminiscent of and the the constant repetition he says it's like the closest thing imaginable to being inside peter cook's head a right. master class of comic comic acting which repeated playing yields only further pleasures and layers of resonance and i think this is all true yeah so we're not listening to four actors in the studio at the same time um we are listening to um yeah it's peter cook and peter cook and peter cook layers upon layers of peter cook compacted onto multiple tracks of recording tape think of the takes the retakes the rewrites the comic and dramatic rhythms reliant upon split second timing and i think it's very easy to underestimate that just i the, think 
the technical mastery, but also the performance mastery of Peter Cook actually to produce that. It doesn't sound like you're listening to somebody multi-tracking a performance. It sounds no. natural and real. Yeah. If they push these two filing cabinet servers of the ride. Push, oh, I, push, 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 Yes, oh, no, I'm there we are. Push, 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 if, if I can uh, offer a weird analogy, when musicians multi-track themselves, it, it's often a bit homogenous, isn't it, yeah. musically? But the, the one artist who I think escapes that is Stevie Wonder. I don't know, he, he can sing, um, I'm thinking of a song like Love's in Need of Love Today, for example, or Songs of the Key of Life. He records, I think it's all the instruments as well, but I'm talking about the vocals. He'll he'll almost get into what you can believe is a real call and response feel, yeah. but it's all himself going back time and time again and, and multi-tracking and overdubbing. Right. And, yeah, I think that just sprung, sprung to mind there. But, yeah, Peter Cook, into stuff like... Uh, please, 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 which might seem to be a throwaway, the way everything is linked together. Yeah. Or, or, or rather overlaid on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's a great example of how that, that blend works really well. Isn't um, my, it incredible? Yeah. My favourite, so I was going to say my favourite is Rosie is my favourite example of that because I find that, I find that incredibly moving. I always have done. And it's a oh, piece yeah. of music that doesn't work. It's not a 10cc track. It's not a Godly and Cream track. It doesn't work. If you take it out of Consequences it, and put it on like a compilation album or music from or best of Consequences, yeah. it makes no sense. It doesn't work. Agreed. But it's Agreed. utterly beautiful. And the way, I love the way it kind of crossfades. You get Blint reminiscing and talking. He's playing his out-of-tune piano. And the out-of-tune piano crossfades with the in-tune piano. And we yes. go inside Blint's head. Yes. Um uh, and suddenly he's singing in tune and it's i, I assume is kev singing yes with a absolutely beautiful tremble in his voice i think that vocal is stunning and the story it tells this is 1976 77 or whatever and they are mm. puncturing the myth of the nostalgia of world war ii that it was grim people died um there's some backstory there i don't know what was some i something odd going on in you know it's the thing about he's it's just that phrase about um, you knew where you stood, the laughing stock of the neighbourhood. And the way that whole thing turns, it's all like jolly East End knees up, everything's lovely. You knew where you stood, like a positive thing. And then yeah. you knew where you stood, you were a laughing stock of the neighbourhood. And it all pivots yeah. on that line. Everything turns on that. Those were the years when beer was beer and you knew where you stood. The laughing stock of the neighborhood. Yeah, Blind always was an outsider and a weirdo. Yeah. Wasn't it? That, that, that one line tells you that. Although the song also explains why he's become what he's become, you know, yes. the, the loss of Rosie. He I mean, never it does, got over it. It does what the best of musical theatre has to do, which is it explains uh, what do they call this in the trade? Something like the I Am song. Every okay. musical has to have an I Am yeah. song. In Hamilton, it's My Shop, for example, where, you know, he explained his manifesto. This is me. This is how I became what I am. And so it follows musical theatre rules exactly there because that song tells you in one fell swoop, uh, one fell swoop, why Blint is what he is. Yeah. It's, and, yeah. Yeah. I the, mean, the backstory. It's, uh, yeah. 
The backstory, it's beautifully delivered. Yeah, you mentioned Kev singing. Well, I mean, this is also an incredible showcase. Lol too, but really Kevin's vocals on this on this yeah. record, throughout the record, are stunning, aren't they? They really Absolutely. are. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's why I will fight my corner for Consequences being the best Godly and Cream album and having the best Godly and Cream songs on it because they are... I don't know. It's, it's difficult. They they kind of get overwhelmed by everything that goes around it. They get overwhelmed by the play. They get overwhelmed by the failure, which perhaps we could talk about as well. Uh, it's the interesting oh, yes. thing. I'd like to talk about that. Yeah. On 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 TV the other night, other evening, they showed the I think it's like the 1959 uh, Peter Cushing um, Hand of the Baskervilles, the Hammer Horror. Oh, okay. The okay. Hammer the good, the good version. Well, one of the good. Well, I like the Basil Rathbone one. Is my f- personal favorite right. but um it's a good it is a good one and i haven't seen it for a long time and i was watching this and i was thinking i was really enjoying it it was great i thought there was something nagging nagging me about this is these two characters that the the father and daughter who live in the um um like in the hovel with a farmer on the adjacent land do you know what they're called what's their surname they're called stapleton, stapleton. <laughs> oh wow that was just a guess <laughs> yeah wow they're the, they're the stapletons and this this is all in Paul Hamilton's book. I've just discovered. So I did know it's showing my age. I, I did I know missed this that little I, factoid. Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd forgotten it. this. But um, he was Peter Cook was recording Consequences at around the same time as filming on Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's Hound of the Baskervilles, mm. directed right. by Paul Morrissey. Have you ever seen it? It's unwatchably bad, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. I, from everything I've read about it, and I've watched two clips on YouTube, and I really wish I hadn't. Um, it's prob- It could well be one of the worst films ever made. Yeah. It, it does sound astonishingly <laughs> bad, especially given the acting talent. You've got a whole amazing cast of like British screen greats, although he just he spells greats G R A T E in this book because they they are that's very Hamilton that is yeah yeah. give a really really appalling dialogue. You've got Kenneth Williams, Terry Thomas, Max War, Irene Handel, Spike Milligan who's one of like Peter Cook's heroes, Prunella Scales, Penelope Keith, and Dana. (laughs) Dana. Dana's in it. I don't know if she's one of the nuns or or... and doesn't Dudley play um, Sherlock's mum. Yeah. yeah. So they double up. So um, Dudley plays Sherlock's mum and Dr. Watson. Um, he plays Dr. Watson with a Welsh accent that is about <laughs> as well advised as Robert Downey Jr.'s Welsh accent in Doolittle. Um, and Peter Cook. So we've got a few links with consequences. It was going on at the same time. Peter Cook wrote co-wrote the script for the hand of the baskervilles he was filming it around the same time this is just i think it came like just after at the end of consequences but i think from what i've been reading i've been trying to piece things together there is a little bit of an overlap uh, between the two so they were going on at the same time um so he so happened at the same time both written by or co-written by peter cook um, we've both got characters called Stapleton in, which can't be a coincidence because Peter Cook would have written the screenplay for Hand of the Baskervilles yeah. either at the same time as Consequences or I think quite a long it, time even. before you'd have thought, actually. Yeah, yeah. for a film. Are you going to um, mention that accent? And then, this is what I'm coming <laughs> to, the accent. I, I was reading about this and they said, for some unknown reason, Peter Cook plays Sherlock Holmes with a Jewish accent, like a really thick, staged, cod Jewish accent. I thought, well, I've got to hear this. So this is why I've watched two clips of it on YouTube. And he does. He sounds like... Malcolm Peppermint, yeah. He's Peppermint. Yeah. 
EEC 2321 Paul says in his book that it's one of the worst performances Peter Cook ever gave mm. anywhere. It's 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 incredibly bad. Yeah, so but, when you compare it to something like Bedazzled, where he's he's just yeah. wonderful. Uh, exactly. Yeah, it, it's an embarrassment. Yeah, and to think but he's it's it's interesting that so he was involved in these two projects which were monumental commercial and and arguably, I mean we would say not, but arguably creative yeah. disasters, like career-ending bad projects or unsuccessful projects and and so hand of the baskervilles was filmed at the same time or just after consequences was being recorded um studio tried to keep a lid on it there was no straight to video option back in 1977 so they sat on it for a year or two and tried to sneak it out when no one would notice um but this would have come like one hard on the heels of the other that he that Peter Cook knew before the film was released, he knew it was no good. They all everyone involved with it knew that it was a complete turkey. Um, they got Paul Morrissey to direct it, who is an American avant-garde director associated with Andy Warhol and the factory in New York, you know, completely the wrong person, um, not capable of directing a comedy and shoehorning in sketches, uh, old Peter Cook sketches like One Leg Too Few that had no place in there. Yeah. So the whole thing was a massive creative disaster. It's kind of another interesting parallel that he's got these two massive turkeys at the same time, one of which we think is a masterpiece. (laughs) I wonder if anybody's got a Hound of the Baskervilles podcast going and and reappraising that. That that would be a stretch, but not us. Um, Some some people like it. I've I've been looking, reading up online about it. There are some hardcore Peter Cook fans who love it, and I I just don't want to watch it. It's funny. I, I I think it leads you to possibly. Is it the year after when Pete and Dud are recording the Ad Nauseam album and they've got the cameras mm. in there? Did, was mm. it called Get the Horn? Pete and uh, Derek and Clive. I think Get so. The yeah. Horn? I, yes. I was reading some stuff about this in Harry Thompson's biography. That came yeah. hard on the end. It was yeah. the end of his working relationship with absolutely. Dudley and you can you can taste the bile and bitterness, can't you? Dudley's career is going through the roof, isn't it? Because he's yes. he's gone to Hollywood. He's successful. Yeah. He's a a magnet for for gorgeous women and everything. Yeah. And and Peter's career is absolutely you know on a his, nosedive. His career is on a nosedive. Um, it's described in I think in the Harry Thompson biography that around this time he's back on um, drink, maybe on drugs as well. His wife Judy Huxtable obviously is in Consequences, mm. playing Lulu, um, was increasingly exasperated with Peter Cook's drinking and behaviour, and that just continued to get worse. And you do kind of wonder if the uh, um, you know, critical or commercial failures of two big projects uh, hard on the back of each other fed into his... Oh, it wasn't like a terminal decline because he has Peter Cook, then his has a late flowering. Yeah. And people who, I think people who know him have said that he was not, you know, he was not a washed up failure. He was still, he was still very funny. He still wrote stuff. He did stuff with Chris Morris. Um, he did so famously stuff with Clive Anderson, you know, it was his big kind of renaissance. Um, but it must have taken its toll. And of course, that that last, I think it might have been his last or one of his last interviews on Clive Anderson, that was almost a, um, 
uh, he reprised his Consequences Act, didn't he? Being interviewed as four separate characters. I know exactly. there were different characters, but it, um, I remember seeing that at the time and immediately that that, that, that struck me as a, as a similarity there. Lord Stockton, um, you are now in the autumn of your years. Uh, nearly dead, yes. Nearly dead, in fact. <laughs> What brings you the most pleasure now? Well, I, I think the thing that gives me the, the greatest single pleasure is being an absolute bloody nuisance. <laughs> it's such fun. It's a wonderful fantasy, isn't it, to be able to go back in time and interview Peter Cook about this record, isn't it? Wouldn't you love to do that? <laughs> I'd love well, to know. I'd love to know about the genesis of the script and where, oh, so why, nice. why so many things that are in there. And I think it does like some of it, like the whole stuff about the twigs and going to going to the butchers, and you know, <laughs> he, he gave me a box of twigs and all that. It's like something out of a David Lynch movie. No, it, it, it absolutely is. We it's, got we got an email, Paul, didn't we, a few months ago from uh, Lindy Smith, Tanya's sister, who uh, they were brilliant on the podcast last year. She had a Jack Harris story, didn't she, about oh, going really? to the butchers in Melbourne? Paul, do you remember? Oh, yeah. It had kind of happened in real life or something, didn't it? Something oh. similar. No, I mean, not. It wasn't twigs. But... It wasn't twigs. But, yeah, uh, but, <laughs> the, but the butcher gave her a strange look. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's right. But when I got home and opened it up, I found three twigs. Well, it's not like Jack to give you twigs instead of mints. And Hermes, that's my cat is not a big twig eater. Anyway, I, I turned round and called to Hermes, and he wasn't there. I haven't seen him since. I reckon he knew about the twigs. I can't remember the detail of that. <laughs> so well, thank that's... you, Lydia. It was brilliant. I wish we could remember the details off the top of our head. That's oh, that's amazing! That that it's whole a... sequence—it doesn't kind of belong with anything else, and it's got the weird. I assume that's Kev doing some mad percussion in the background. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's He's a got dog the dogs barking. barking yeah. that, that's very appropriate. <laughs> yes, oh, but that yes. when I, when I was a kid, that percussion used to scare the life out of yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, it's for really, it's, I don't know. It's just like a really spooky. It's a monologue. Yeah. Really spooky. Really got under my skin as well. Yeah, yeah. Like wondering right. about who these people were. Were these? Where did these names come from? Who's Mrs. Cretch? Yeah. Where does that well, name come from? Yeah, I've, I've, I've looked it up. And it doesn't. It, yeah. And, and she's and she's Walter's, the unrequited love of 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 Walter's of life, Walter, obviously. He says he, her name in his sleep. That's he? right. I know. And he goes, oh, Mrs. Mrs. Cretch. <laughs> <laughs> I so I would yeah. What what would I wouldn't I give to talk to Peter Cook yeah. and ask him about where where those things came from? Who was Mrs. Cretch? What was the what were the twigs about? Why was why was his cat <laughs> called Hermes? And what about the pyramids? <laughs> yeah, the pyramids. Well, well we came we up did. with the right cock and bull theory about that, didn't we, Paul? God. Yeah, we did. We got ourselves into not tied ourselves in knots, really, we trying to <laughs> trying to sort of do it through, it mus mm. through musical theory. And uh, and I don't <laughs> think there's anything there, really, is there? No. Well, all the stuff so, about people being chords as well. About as, as does that come from anywhere? Has anyone ever? You know, was that well, Peter Cook was tone deaf, wasn't he? Well, so Famous. why? So why? Where? It's such a it's yeah, like well, such a compelling idea. I can't believe that hasn't cropped up elsewhere in literature ever. But no, if he invented it, it's brilliant. No, what's it, a great what's it idea. I mean, it fits in with what's it called? Synesthesia. Synesthesia. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it fits in yeah, with that. Exactly. So I, it, yeah. it, it it totally uh, makes sense to me. But the chords that Lowell plays on the piano behind the script aren't the yeah. chords that peter cook's talking about were they about? not because no, i'm not, not i'm not musical <laughs> no. so that's really i always assumed yeah. that lol was playing the same chord 
So that shows Peter, Peter Cook's just picked a yeah, chord out of thin air. Yeah, yeah, he's riffing, I should think. Or, or, uh, change, so, or you're a G major. Or change the name of the chord because it didn't sound right on his tongue. He, he says, oh, no, G major yes. so, you know, sounds funny. Yeah, G major so, sounds good, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it's uh, verbally, if yeah. not musically. But uh, I was thinking before when you were talking about uh, the prospect of, of uh, Hamilton rummaging through Peter Cook's old sort of archives. Mm. Peter, Pete and Dud used to improvise all their sketches onto cassettes, didn't they? And then, mm-hmm. and then, and then they get a transcriber to type them out. Um, so there could be, and you know, we, I've now become sort of semi-obsessed with tapes. There could be a little <laughs> stash of oh, consequences. Rehearsal tapes. It, uh, there yeah. could have been works in progress that yeah. they might have taken home or to, uh, rather taken back to the Piccadilly Hotel, Kevin Lawler. Or one that he just you know, recorded at home, Paul. It's really yeah, I'm just wondering whether, yeah, whether Peter Cook had recorded oh, stuff into a tape just recorder. Because if that's, that's part of his working yeah. thing. Because I remember, I think I remember not long after he died, something about cassettes right. coming out of him in character. I don't know whether this is part of his Sven the Fisherman face oh yeah where, you know right. he used to ring lbc up yes right. yeah <laughs> and pretend to be different characters and one of them was sven the i think he was a norwegian fisherman maybe <laughs> oh, i don't yeah, know yeah. No, got it wrong, but, um and i think those there were somebody had some uncovered a stash of recordings of him in character that i i have to search up where i got this from but I, as i recalled it that they were recovered from his house then in swiss cottage Hello, Sven. Yes, I'm, I'm only a visitor here from, from Norway. And I listen to the program and think one wonderful thing is because in Norway, the phone-in is mainly devoted to subjects of, you know, that like fish. That's right. And there, well, was a, um, there were tapes of him having drunken conversations with his next-door neighbour and things like that right. um, yeah. that were released kind of, you know, without his permission. So it does kind of suggest that Peter was recording himself uh, deliberately yes. on cassette. And you have to, because you look at those tiny little pictures of the script of consequences. Yeah, I know. You, you, can't, you can't make it out really. But they're typed up, aren't they? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Does somebody type that up? I can't imagine Peter Cook having the patience to sit down there and type it. I can imagine him giving somebody a cassette and say, look, type that up. No, that's right. That's <laughs> or some handwritten scrawl. That's saying a really good that. question. You, you do that and I'll, and I'll just go and read the papers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And there are, pic- there are pictures, aren't there, uh, in the... In the studio, where you can see bits of paper and tape, and maybe signage, you know, uh, uh, stuck up all around the studio, which had yeah. also something to do with the script. So it's. I wonder. There must have been somebody. This was at the Manor, is that right? Where? Yes, the Peter, Peter Cook's Cook sessions I, were. I don't recorded. think Peter Cook did anything at Strawberry, did he, right. Sean? He, he did all his stuff down. I'm at the sure Manor. it was all at the Manor. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. somebody there, I reckon, was tasked up with producing the script or having a working copy of the script in the way that you do for a film, surely, that you have you have a, a working copy yes. that gets updated and is given, well, I don't know, I suppose they didn't need four copies of it because it was <laughs> they needed two <laughs> copies. Presumably Judy needed a copy as well, <laughs> at least of her parts. I don't know. You know, we tried to get in touch with Judy or have tried to get in touch with Judy uh, through... Uh, well, through her publisher, you know, because she brought out her autobiography about 10 years ago. But since then, she's really uh, retired and just wants to live right. a private life. And, and the publisher didn't have a forwarding address for her. Right, and it doesn't sure. seem to be any other way of contact, contacting her, which 
it would be great. It's a because shame because it was the only it was the only time the two of them ever worked together. Was it really? Because, yes, which is also significant that he, yeah. that he decided to bring his wife uh, again, who he had a an interesting relationship, um, working relationship, shall we say, mm. or lack of one. But yeah. he, she was brought on board for this project, so that would be interesting. To so who, who has the Peter Cook? archive now if it exists if it wasn't just put in a skip in Hampstead <laughs> yeah I don't know what happened to the house or the archive Hamilton might know actually <laughs> it would be really interesting yeah, be both best, from the audio the tape and the us. written written script point of view it would be Definitely. absolutely fascinating we, it? did we find out that Peter Wheeler the, the voiceover guy uh did he pass away I can't remember yeah he's, yeah. he's died and Mel yeah, Collins yeah. is he is he still uh around uh I honestly don't know, but I suspect he very well may be, of course, a, a well-known session musician who played on all sorts of records. That's right. He, um, he'd be a fascinating chap. I'm probably doing it. I guess he's not just a session musician. Apologies. He was probably, you know, in, in groups in his own right. I don't know for sure. Um, well, we did manage to get to Paul Gambaccini, of course. Yes. But he didn't, he couldn't. Well, I, I, I remember. I say, no, that's that's not fair. He gave a fantastic no, it was, it was, it was a stock tour of, of, of everything that went on in yeah. the 1970s. Yeah. But, spe but specifics about details that we wanted to know about chronology and timings. Yeah. And what it was like remember. in the studio and that sort of thing. It, he was a, yes. bit, a bit vague on those things. But, right. you know, hey-ho. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, so it's been a fly on the wall. And the, in, uh, the involvement of Richard Branson is kind of intriguing as well, because he owned, presumably he owned the manor. Was it right? Part of the yes, Virgin Records that, group. Yes. Um, and I think that's mentioned in the Caroline reissue interview with Lol and Kev. I think Lol says something like, you know, Richard Branson said, we'll put it, I'll put it out on a double album for 12 quid or something. So it'd be, it'd be interesting to know more about that. He said a fiver, uh, didn't he, Richard Branson? Oh, I think. Oh, a fiver. He, which, he was which yeah, been a much more sensible plan. Yeah. Do you know the <laughs> I'm story? Glad they and I, <laughs> do you know the story? And I can mention this because it was in Judy's book that he concocted an elaborate plan. Uh, to seduce her during the recording of Consequences, which no. worked. He, um, uh, I think Judy was often chauffeured back to her, her house or her and Peter's house, I imagine. Peter wasn't there and normally a chauffeur would take her back. But I think Branson persuaded the chauffeur to pretend that he had food poisoning so that Branson drove her back himself. And, oh, my goodness. And, uh, and had his way with her, yeah. I mean, that's in Judy's book. Right, so, I've not read that. So that was a, an anecdote during the... Uh, <laughs> what happened during the recording of Consequence. Yeah, I but just my, wonder my what... air is such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> in keeping with the liberated trends of the time, the couple tried the swinging lifestyle with an open marriage. They entered into a partner-swapping situation with soft machine musician Kevin Ayers and his wife. Branson didn't do very well with Ayers' wife, but Kristen and Kevin hooked up and had a child together. Branson later said in retrospect he and his first wife simply had been too young for their marriage to last. I do wonder what a Virgin Records release of Consequences would have been like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, never mind the bollocks. Listen to this. I mean, um, the, I, I guess that was never going to happen for contractual reasons. <laughs> imagine that they, it, would, it would have come out at about the same time as Never Mind the Bollocks. Yeah. And, and, well, which is course, just you, outrageous. You, you know, everyone knows, I imagine, or sorry, do, do you know that Peter Cook was slated to appear in the, in the Sex Pistols film, but yes. chose, chose, chose to do consequences. consequences. <laughs> well, he made the right 
You made the right choice. Well, yeah. if the choice was between that and the hand of the Baskervilles, I think he probably made the wrong choice. Well, yeah, maybe so. I was going to say, let's talk a bit about Kevin Lowell's relationship with consequences, okay. which is fascinating. I'd like to ask Giles, how did you get hold of those uh, really watershed, aching 1997 interviews? Uh, they were published in Uncut, but you got the 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 full versions which Kit, appear on the website. Kit Aitken uh, emailed them to me. <laughs> Oh, okay. There you go. That's... Um, so, yeah, I think he'd been doing research about consequences and obviously stumbled upon Mr. Prince Attic as the only thing on the internet about okay. the album. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> I can't remember exactly whether he picked my brains about it at all, but he said um, they had a longer version of the uh, of the interviews and would I like them? Of course I said yes. Wow. They're incredible, aren't they? Because, mm. I mean, that was the first time I'd... Uh, heard either of them discuss consequences at length and this yeah. was 20, 20 years after the event yeah and and it kind of set in stone uh what continues to this day which appears to be uh in summary that that kevin has a very complicated and uneasy relationship with the album yeah. lol like to be fair he looks on all his art he he just is very much let's do it and move on and not look back and just exactly. enjoy the experience. He has a much more relaxed attitude to it, I think, doesn't it? It's like it is what it is. It, yeah. it was what it was, and it that's fine. <laughs> it doesn't seem like posturing. I think he really does feel like that. Mm. Uh, whereas Kevin was really troubled by the reception of, of the record yeah. and, and, and still can't listen to large parts of it. And when we spoke to him, mm. although he was very gracious and talked, to us about it for a long time and was happy to it's, it's tell us lo- lots of stuff. Absolutely he, lovely hearing him talk about yeah, and what the about fact he's, made, really. he's made his peace with it, hasn't he? The fact yeah. he said well, uh, he, he loves almost all of it was well okay. He's, he he's seems to have, there. he seems to have changed his position on it because when I start there was you know in that interview, I think the Kit Aitken interview is very dismissive of like me and people who were mm-hmm. um you know obsessed with it. Um and it, or if not that interview, another one around the same time where he's just no, I, like, think yeah. it, I think it was that one. He's, he, I think his words were <laughs> there's just somebody says, Well, it's Kit says, Have you seen the website? It says, Yeah, there's just some gibberish on it about the characters or something yeah, exactly. which is thoroughly unfair but that says more about kevin than it does about no, well no but i you know, to take that on the chin absolutely yeah from the, of course from, yeah. from the creator of uh or co-creator of it but he does so yes he seems to have been uh on a journey um, from uh from that position and just i think it's something that he just pushed from his mind completely to he's been i guess forced to come back to terms with it occasionally with the odd reissue but, um, and journalists pestering it, and now podcasters knocking on the door. But it's amazing that he's, you know, he's given you so many uh, amazing interviews. Oh, and incredible, incredible. It's just, well, the other thing, the other, I just wanted to say, the revelation, I haven't, I've quite caught up with every episode of your podcast yet, because that's, done a, a that's, lot, that's the healthiest way to be, I think. Yeah, to, to be frank, so. yes. I've, I've got a bit of catching up to do, but the joy, <laughs> the absolute joys for me, as well as obviously the Kevin interviews, have been, well, Harvey Lisberg, mm. oh, what yeah. a revelation. Yes. And I could listen to him talk all day. Yeah. I just thought, why does he not have his I, own podcast or his own radio I, show? I often do listen to him talk <laughs> yeah. quite a lot of the day, actually. He, Paul they... speaks to him on the phone a lot. Oh, do oh, you? Yeah. He's, he's, he's a lovely guy. Uh, uh, <sighs> obviously a fascinating character who's, you know, played a pivotal role in so much music. And the thing I love about Harvey uh, is his enthusiasm. And 
his enthusiasm for projects new and old and yeah. for artists big and small. He genuinely feels as passionate about, um, you know, those artists who worked in the Kennedy Street stable who weren't successful as those who right. were, like Herman Sermitz and, yeah. and later 10CC. He's a real enthusiast. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, that's fantastic. It's lovely, lovely, just so lovely. If you get the chance to do another interview with him, if you can find a hook or a topic. Well, we're definitely, another... we're definitely talking about yeah. it. Yeah, oh, we're definitely going to do it. I mean, he's got to I... tell us all about his, you know, you know, he managed uh, Jimmy White and Alex Higgins. Uh, <laughs> oh, and so we've good. got to hear all about that. You've you got know, to start a new podcast. Snoopy, yeah. Snooker. <laughs> Snooker Loopy, we could call but it. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not particularly <laughs> interested in Snooker, but I would be yeah. totally up for that. I would listen to that. But the other, so there's that. And the other thing mm. that he's got in common with the other highlight for me is graham goldman because both mm. of them their careers are so long i just like it occurs to me they're like like zalig like the woody allen film like some <laughs> yes. like, yeah. how could you possibly have been in that band then or manage them in yeah. what seems like prehistory to me yeah <laughs> um you know i'm in my 50s but this is way before i was born and still yeah. going and mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. making music and still managing stuff and the graham the graham interviews what yeah. what a hasn't joy he to been, to. Yeah, hasn't he been the most f honest, funny, kind of warm, warm person? Uh, just yeah. I have grown to absolutely love Graham, mainly through listening to your podcast and then discovering a lot of his music and especially the Graham Goldman thing, that album. Yeah. I can't believe that that album was swept under the carpet and I think not even initially released in this country. Is that right? It was just yeah, yeah. Correct. It was, forgotten. Yeah. Crazy, isn't uh, it? Um, I'm and such a great album. He's such a genius songwriter. You only have to listen to his catalogue up to like 1969, and you can mm, stop yeah, there mm, and mm. think this man is a genius. Let alone well, what what he went on to go and do. But such a brilliant uh, communicator and talker, and the way he talks about stuff. And you, I get the impression he's someone who doesn't suffer fools badly. He's not, no, you know, not he he he, you know, he's got his lines that he doesn't want to cross. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just comes across so well as such a such an utterly fascinating stuff. The stuff about his dad and their yes. co-writing. I just I've never heard anything like it, and I, it's something I knew nothing about. And maybe go back and reappraise. Um, early 10CC stuff that I loved and think more about his involvement, you know, what was his contribution to that? Because I had thought up to that point, what did I like about 10CC? It was just Godly and Cream. Uh -huh. And I realised through listening to your podcast, there was more to it than that, that I shouldn't write off the other two. Yeah. Well, um, well thank you. We take that as a compliment. And, and of course, Graham, we also discovered, we think, played on consequences. Yeah, I think, no. I, I, think I found the bit as well. Oh, which bit do you think which it is? Bit? My theory is that Graham plays the dis the funky disco guitar when An Andy <laughs> when Andy Peebles is doing his Andy Peebles voiceover. How you doing, young disco king here to do his thing? Yeah, I, I think yes. I, I think that sounds like Graham playing guitar to me. That's got to be it, because he, yes, he seemed to remember doing something. There was, of course, this murky period yeah. where uh, Eric Stewart had been, inverted commas, well, actually, I don't need inverted commas, fired. Fired. And, yeah. And, and, yeah, and the other three were still working together, but then uh, it right. turned into a, a Kevin and Lowell thing. That, that's so, yeah, it was uh, yeah, that's a whole story in itself. So from childhood, like being obsessed with the Beatles, and like I love, I was as much into the story of the Beatles and their breakup, yeah. intrigued me as much mm -hmm. as the music almost. Yeah. 
And then I'm intrigued. I like, I'm really interested in bands like that that have like split and reformed. Like around the same time, it's the odd thing, like in terms of my musical taste, I like the Beatles a lot, but around the time that I was getting into Consequences, this was like the mid 80s. I was listening to synth pop. I was listening to early Human League, early Heaven 17. But they've got that same story as well. That the, um, yeah, oh, the Human right. League, yeah. the original course, Human League yeah. was a different man, really. That's Heaven 17. Yeah. Yes. It was, you know, the, the basically the guys who wrote the music and played most of the instruments got fired <laughs> <laughs> and had to go off and form their own band. And it was like leaving the singer, leaving Phil Oakey. What's going to happen to them? Well, we'll never hear of them again. How yeah. yeah, wrong so, could you be? They were more successful than Heaven 17. But um, so I love... I love that stuff. The 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 oh, me too. And that the, was the one, riffs, the dynamics that are falling out. <laughs> that, that was one of the reasons, Giles, why um, standing in that studio and listening to that Revlon ad playing back was well, so. It had such resonance because you're thinking, shit, that could have been a major reason why they flew the nest. Yeah. Okay. Because it's, it's it's happening just before the the disastrous people in love it's session. Right at that point, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Obviously, they'd had the idea already, uh, mm. of, of or, or the feelings of frustration. But I wonder if if the Revlon ad was was a little bit more than a straw that broke the camel's back. What do you think, Paul? You know, the Revlon ad. Yeah, I think so, Sean. And the Revlon ad is interesting for what doesn't appear on it and is replaced by a string synth. Gizmo, right? Yeah, um, that was a surprise. We didn't really talk about the the string synth, no, which the doesn't synth, the synth because you mentioned, don't you, that it's it's an oddity. Yeah, and the, yes. Um, yeah. What is that doing there? It doesn't appear, as far as you know, I think, on any other 10cc recordings. At, certainly don't at that time, I think so. It, one imagines if Kev and Lol, or specifically Lol, had been more invested, he might have wanted to use the Gizmo, which by that, you know. Or maybe if they had more time, if they're just knocking this off on a Saturday in between Buck yeah, and Harvest sessions, yes. then maybe they just didn't have time to get a temperamental no. gizmo. And, I, and I, I, I strongly yeah. feel that, that Eric had planned for Kevin to alternate the lead vocals with him well, a la the old, thing about old Wild vocal. Man. Maybe yeah, Kevin. Yeah. Maybe Kevin Who said, do you think it is, Giles? Who do you think it is? I, <laughs> this is going to sound mad. You're going to say it's not. I think <laughs> it is Eric and Kevin. I think it's both of them. Do you mean tracked up? You mean they're yeah. both singing at the same time? Yeah, and I'm probably wrong, but no, it's no. it's where various people who've listened to it have said that they hear either one of them in it. Do you or know both what I'm going to? I think I think I'm going to string together the um, the individual tracks one after the other. Yeah, right. Not, not you could simultaneously. Do that, I think yeah. I, I think we'll do that. In fact, I could tag it on the end here, couldn't I, Giles? Are you, uh, will you, you, will you allow yeah. us to do that? Because this course. is your gig; it's not ours. <laughs> but, um, but no, you'll hear the the kind of the the, the soft and slightly lispy way that Eric says mm. the letter S. Yes, and and that comes out of this vocal. To yeah. me, each of the four vocal tracks sound like an identical singer. That is not Kevin oh, okay. singing, but. My theory is that we've had lots of theories today. It's marvelous. Um, <laughs> my theory is that that Eric wanted it to be like old wild men, so he wanted them to right. alternate to bang, hard left, hard right, etc. Maybe Kevin said, "Nah, don't want to touch it." And maybe Eric is trying his best to sound like Kevin. Oh, 
I was going to say that's my other theory was that okay. it's Eric impersonating Kevin. Yes. Because if I had to choose, if you put a gun to my head and said, "Tell me, is it? It's it's only one of them. Which is it?" I would say Eric. It sounds more like Eric than Kevin, but I get a, I do hear a bit of Kevin yeah. in and, it. And, and, and our first reaction. <laughs> In the studio uh, at that moment, my vocal, my three out of four of was, us was Kevin. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah that was interesting. Yeah, and Graham, Graham, Graham kind of was doing convinced. Kevin. He's impersonating. Graham thought Henry. it was Kevin, although we have to tell you that Lol thought it was Graham, which is interesting. <laughs> but <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a complete spanner in the words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think that's a bit of an outlier that one. <laughs> but he did hear it kind of <laughs> literally off a phone down a down through a laptop. Oh right, he wasn't listening to the original. Yeah, well, uh, the he, original he, dub of it. He wasn't in headphones or anything. I don't think right. so. Yeah, he'd yeah. have heard a really bad quality recording. But what a, what a moment that I just love the film, <laughs> the whole oh, the whole project. Thanks, um, thank I love you. the way you've told the story. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. And what a, what a what a thing to do and to discover. And I love listening to it as well. I've had it in my head for a couple of days having listened to it again just the, just yes, the other day you know the piano it does remind me of consequences doesn't um, it just yeah and then the shift at the end where the chords all change at the end the bit that you think graham wrote yes um, yeah. it reminds me sort of madly of like a, a 70s 80s american tv theme tune. it's like the hill well, street blues the mike it, post yeah a few people have of. said this It is. I I didn't make that connection. Somebody said it on YouTube. And now you said it, Giles. Ah, and, yep. it, and perhaps we can add a bit of Hill Street <laughs> bit, Blues bit on this pod as well. I love that. Because <laughs> there is a... Dun, 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 dun. It's mm. not the main motif of yeah. the uh, Hill Street Blues theme. It's probably the secondary motif. Yeah. But yes. it's exactly the same. Yes. Although, of course, uh, the Revlon ad predates Hill Street Blues. Mm. And it can't have been heard, yeah. so it no. must have been no. per- people working on parallel tracks without hearing each other. Oh, that's fine. Yes, Very of course, in- I hadn't realised Hill Street Blues was later, wasn't it? it was yeah, kind of 81, like early 80s. Yeah. Well, well I th- we, Paul and I are kind of tentatively uh, talking about doing a deep dive into the, the tape baking and, and kind of breaking mm. some of the, the songs apart. Yeah, uh, and and hearing some of the the lovely things that were recorded that you kind of don't really hear on the records because they're buried, yeah. um, and it'd be lovely to kind of analyze the the advert and yeah, uh, you know, to pick it apart because uh, it is it's fascinating musically, chord wise yeah. it's kind of almost too subtle for its own good, exactly. and then and then like you say, Jars, you've got that gorgeous thing at the end where it kind of um, the the chords and the bass the bass notes kind of. Do the the very Goldman-y thing and go off yeah. in their different directions, but in a beautiful way. So, yeah. Paul, if you're up for that, I'd I'd love to kind of uh, spend a, an hour or two. Oh, of course, why not? And of course, it's it, also it's the only thing we've got our hands on, isn't it? So that's why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the only yes. multi-track we've got. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yes, we've got the tapes. I, yes. I, there's so much to unpick as well about the fact that they were clearly trying to make it sound like a sort of condensed, Campbell's condensed 10 cc, weren't yes. they? With the multi-track vocals, so you got a bit of "I'm Not in Love" in there. Is it, is it the kick drum as well? And yeah, the, yeah. Uh, multi-track vocals which sound a bit like "I'm Not in Love," don't they? And you've got piano that looks forward to consequences, Hollywoody, don't hang up, e sort of brand yeah. new day. Yeah, but also like burial scene. Yeah, uh, it, you know, it points forward to consequences. 
does. And so look, extraordinary, they can't remember it. This is, the, I can't, this is, clearly it exists. You know, maybe it's just fallen through a wormhole from a parallel dimension. <laughs> well, the But theory, if that's the only difference between the other universe and this universe is that 10CC recorded a Revlon commercial that never got used. It's a subtle yeah. difference. Well, the theory, and this may, we may not be able to put this in the podcast, but I'll tell you this, Giles, is that Eric cut a deal on his own and kind of persuaded the other three to come in and record it. Oh, right. Yeah. So, so the the fact that it's a mystery that it doesn't you know they can't remember it. It's not in the Revlon archives. Just adds to the mystique. <laughs> the <laughs> the only nice. person the only person who can remember it happening and convince convinces us that it's real is Peter Patterson, the right. the founder of Strawberry Studio. He remembers it. Right. Thank God, because nobody right. else. Otherwise, can. we'd all be going mad. Yeah. We are. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Brilliant. Mm. Giles, this has been. Um, <laughs> the geekiest conversation i've ever had let alone yeah. broadcast and i've loved every minute of it oh thank, thank you, you so, thank you so much. much i've i've enjoyed it so much i have not probably since i persuaded one of my school chums to get into it um hello michael <laughs> street if you're listening yeah, um steve I've, morris chris jones <laughs> we, we love you all, i've all not four had a i don't think i've had a conversation about consequences since i was 17 wow wow Bloody <laughs> hell. Well, you should have talked to us before that then. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, actually, so you were 17 when you got into it, Giles. Yep. I think I was. 15, and what about I you, was Sean? 15. Oh, that breaks, that breaks the formula. I wish I had been 17. That, yeah, it would have been a, lo- yeah, a, a lovely... Yeah. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, so, oh. Giles, bless you. This has been so, so good. And uh, we Thank wish you. you all the best down there in South London. South London. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Go, well, and well, have well, fun absolute when pleasure. you're down the Palais. Are you going <laughs> to looking forward to having an ease up? Having an ease up. <laughs> I turned around at Harry. Uh, yeah. No, absolute joy. Thank you so much. I hope we do get to meet up face to face. I never got to the Strawberry Exhibition. Never well, found the time. It's still there. It's still there. What a fool! What a fool was I for not doing that? Yeah. So, yeah. We'll see you up in Stockport then. So hopefully, I did. Yeah, one of the side things doesn't need to go in the podcast, but I did. I remembered fairly recently that I did. My then girlfriend. I lived in Bramall, and oh, my then girl, as when I was a student, or after, just after I was a student, had a car minor car crash right outside Strawberry Studios. Oh my goodness. <laughs> But I'd never really made the connection. I sort of, I didn't know because I hadn't really got into right. the history of 10 well, I didn't right. realise the significance of where I was. God. Her car made a connection with something. I don't know what it was. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I hope you were okay after that. Oh, yeah, no, it was just a minor shunt. Oh, good. Oh, good stuff. It. Yeah. Wow, the magic of strawberry. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Some, something in the air there. Yeah. But anyway, um, great to see you chaps. And uh, Giles, thanks again. It's Thank really so great fun. Take oh, care. lovely. Take yeah. care. Thanks Absolutely. so much, Charles. We'll see you, you. see you again soon. Cheers, Bye-bye. mate. Bye. Bye. Cheers. You've been listening to The Consequences Podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening. Dream a dream of far-off places Petal faces And morning flowers With April showers You don't lie Natural wonder 
gentle makeup with shifting winds kiss your face mirror mirror every day is a natural wonder mirror mirror you don't lie every day is a natural wonder young skins younger